Welcome to the UBS Faith and Philanthropy series on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Welcome to UBS On Air. My name is Deborah Ferris, and I am a senior strategist on the Family Advisory and Philanthropy Services team here at UBS. The mission of our group is to serve as a thought partner for exceptional families. We understand that our clients' needs extend beyond the purely financial, so we take a strategic and sustainable approach to managing their wealth for continuity. We work with our clients to get to the heart of what is most important to them and help align their passions with charitable giving opportunities that achieve their philanthropic goals. Part of this process involves learning from others and hearing new, unique perspectives, as well as connecting across communities and cultures to discuss the issues that impact us all. I'm really delighted to welcome you all today for Faith and Philanthropy, exploring philanthropy and purpose from a Jewish perspective. Our Faith and Philanthropy series is in its fourth year of providing a global perspective on various faith motivations, Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. We connect leaders from our community to share their motivations from the same faith and values. Today, I am so happy to be joined by Mark Gershon. Mark is the co-founder of the Gershon Lehrman Group and several other companies. He's an investor in industries including software, e-commerce, cryptocurrency, and real estate. Mark is the chairman of African Mission Healthcare, which partners with Christian doctors and hospitals to provide clinical care, medical training, and infrastructure throughout Africa. And in that capacity, is perhaps the world's largest donor to Christian medical missionary activity. He is also the co-founder and chairman of United Hezbollah of Israel, the pioneering volunteer system of emergency first response that enables victims of pre-hospital trauma to be treated in the moments that separate life from death. Mark is the host of the popular podcast, The Rabbi's Husband, a show that explores the greatest hits of Jewish thought in conversation with some of the most interesting thinkers and leaders from varying religious persuasions. His book, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life, was recently published by St. Martin's Essentials and is available at bookstores everywhere and is a national bestseller. Mark, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you. It's so great to be here, Deborah. Thank you. Yeah. I want to first ask about The Rabbi's Husband. I'm familiar with the podcast, but kind of what's the story behind it and, and the format? How'd you get started? And I'm kind of curious about the name The Rabbi's Husband. Is it because of Erica, the rabbi, who, you, who you're married? Yes, absolutely. Um, there's a, there's a, in, in the Hebrew language, there's actually um, no word to describe face in the singular. Uh, there's only panim, which is faces, because all of us have um, many different aspects to our personality. So there's no point in having a word to describe one. So we all have many different aspects of the personality. But I need one title for the podcast. And so the most important one to me is I'm the rabbi's husband, America's husband. So I said, that'll be the title for the podcast. And, uh, and I'm sticking with it. I'm the rabbi's husband. And uh, hopefully it'll be w- with me for life and perhaps... Uh, at the end of days on my grave, it'll, it'll read, Here Lies the Rabbi's Husband. What's the podcast about? Well, one of the things that um, I discovered really in, in the course of writing um, my book, which you referenced in the introduction, uh, The Telling, which is a, about how the Haggadah, which is the book that, we, that really guides us through the Passover Seder, how it is not a dinner program or a holiday manual, but it's really a great guidebook for life. So one of the uh, many things that I learned in the process of writing the book was how so many people from all kinds of uh, different disciplines and walks of life and backgrounds and different faith orientations and everything else um, really uh, respond to a specific biblical passage. There's so often a biblical passage or a biblical story or 
some kind of uh, lesson from uh, biblical teaching that really is meaningful and motivating to so many people. So I said, why don't I launch a podcast? Well, I'll invite these people to come as guests to discuss that part of the Bible, which really animates them. So uh, that's what the Rabbi's Husband podcast. Great. I've listened to a few of them, and um, I'm always uh, enlightened uh, by the passages and your guests. Um, you know, how it, how it relates to their lives. In addition to the podcast, you know, kind of shifting over here, you're a, a husband, a father, an entrepreneur, an author, and a philanthropist, buried in diverse backgrounds. Following on the heels of the story about the rabbi's husband, can you share with us your kind of personal story and your philanthropic journey? Sure. So um, I, uh, I graduated from uh, Melbourne High School in uh, New Jersey in uh, 1990 and then went to Williams College, and then I um, went to uh, Jersey City, where I taught uh, um, 10th grade U.S. history at a Catholic high school there. Then I went to uh, law school at Yale, where um, uh, during uh, my third year, I started a GLG, Gerson Lehrman Group, and I started my journey as a philanthropist uh, several years later, um, and really the um, uh, major uh, commitments that, that I have now, and I'm sure we'll discuss, were those that... Uh, um, I started early on in my philanthropic journey and have um, really grown with. Wow. All right. That's great. Let's jump right in. One of the organizations that is very important to you and your wife, Erica, is the African Mission Healthcare Organization. And it's a Christian organization that's faith-based but not faith-biased, an organization having a faith heritage but doing work for everyone or anybody. How did you come about establishing the organization? And can you tell our listeners its approach and partnerships with Mission Hospitals? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I uh, co-founded African Mission Healthcare in 2010 after having um, supported uh, the kinds of work that African Mission Healthcare has done uh, from 2010 to the present for several years before 2010. And I co-founded it with Dr. John Fielder. And uh, John uh, was a, is a very close friend dating back to our freshman year in college. And uh, when John uh, was finishing up his uh, residency um, at Johns Hopkins uh, after medical school, of course, uh, he called me and he said, um, as you know, uh, I'm a Christian. And uh, also, uh, as you know, um, AIDS is um, really ravaging Africa. And so he said, as a Christian, um, I feel called to uh, go to Africa and to serve the poor. And he became um one of the great uh, AIDS and infectious disease doctors in Africa, having gone over there in the early 2000s um, at a time when uh, the resources to treat AIDS patients were very low. But uh, he went over there and uh, was um, one of uh, the physicians uh, doing the sacred work of treating the poor uh, when AIDS was ravaging Africa. And so and at around that point, I and uh, my brother and several others, our, our friends, began a uh, supporting his work and other uh, aligned work that John directed us to. And uh, over the next several years, um, when uh, John was an AIDS doctor in Kenya, and then he um, went to uh, Malawi uh, to be an AIDS infectious disease doctor there, one of the many things that we learned, again, all, all directed by John, so one of the many things that I learned, but all from him, is that uh, perhaps the greatest humanitarian problem in the world is the lack of access to any medical care for almost everybody in Africa. Um, in most African countries, 
there's one doctor for 10 to 50,000 people. Now, this is not specialist. This is one doctor. So what does this mean? It means that if your child uh, breaks his leg or if your sister needs a cesarean section or if any kind of medical care is needed, it's probably inaccessible. In other words, the patient probably won't get it. Um, however, the people who are on the ground doing the work, providing the clinical care to the poor, and very importantly, building the systems so that the poor get care now in increasing numbers and will get uh, much more care in much greater numbers in the future, and that's what a system can accomplish, are Christian missionary doctors. And these are people who, inspired by their Christian faith, have uh, moved to Africa and often devote their entire careers and their entire lives to uh, serving the poorest doctors and to building the hospitals and systems that can amplify care long into the future. Now, the problem is they had no consistent source of support uh, because of a variety of um, primarily sociological reasons. Uh, the support that used to be given to them by um, their churches and denominations have significantly diminished. And uh, so they were left there doing literally God's work with no consistent source of support. So uh, we established African Mission Healthcare in 2010 to be the partner in a whole variety of ways uh, for these uh, Christian doctors and hospitals who were providing care to the poor. And when I say a whole variety of ways, we essentially uh, partner with these Christian doctors and hospitals to do three things. One is direct clinical care for the poor. Uh, the second is um, infrastructure building, and infrastructure building could be, it could be, it is everything from uh, identifying that a Christian hospital spends, and this is typical, up to forty percent of their budget on power, uh, wow. because they have, yeah, because they are really on 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 the energy to get the power, uh, because there may not be consistent. Power, there might not be consistent running water, so in order to get as much as they can, it'll be extremely expensive. So we might come in there and build a, a solar plant. And then once the solar plant is built, um, the costs go down to 2%. Uh, but it needs that capital investment. Or infrastructure could be um, we need a building to do medical education, or we need to put in consistent running water, or we need to um, uh, all kinds of things. We need to put in housing. So one of the one of the um, probably the major issue that or the most consistent request from um, the doctors that we partner with around Africa is for to build housing um, local to the hospital because the most valuable resource in the um, African medical setting is um, a doctor or a doctor who's being trained because um, a doctor who's being trained um, is someone who will be uh, serving patients now and developing the skills to uh, serve patients for the next 25 or 30 years and the ability to train others. But if there's no place for that person to live, that person can't come to the hospital. And there's very rarely a private housing market near these hospitals. So we have to build housing. So we can build housing at $15,000 a door and that housing will be sustainable forever because the rent will come out of the future doctor's salary. So that's the capital investment we make in terms of infrastructure. So we do clinical care, we do infrastructure, and very importantly, we do training. So these are kind of the, the three services that we render in partnership with Christian uh, doctors and hospital uh, throughout Africa. Um, 
all towards uh, expanding clinical care for people there now while massively amplifying it long into the future. Oh, wow. I mean, your support and your investment has made such an impact in 10 years. I mean, that's right uh, in the sense that there's no place to give more efficiently and more effectively than um, to uh, Christian doctors serving the African poor. I mean, when everything we do is completely uh, data-oriented. We have a – we, and I'm talking about the people – outside of Africa, the business people, as well as the doctors in Africa. I mean, these doctors in Africa, they have to become so incredibly versatile that they can do everything medically. I mean, we, we've worked with doctors in Africa who have taught themselves how to do surgery on YouTube because there's no other surgeons for sometimes millions of people nearby, so they have to develop the skills. So the versatility of these doctors is incredible, which, among other things, gives really teaches one just how how um, extraordinary the, a human being can be. But another one of their skills is a lot of these doctors could be CFOs of like lots of companies. So um, everything we do is very data-oriented, very business-oriented. And when we look at the numbers, I mean, it's it's, it's astonishing that we're, we're now um, doing surgeries, life-changing or life-saving surgeries for sometimes under $300. And um, and in a lot of places where we operate, literally, actually, it's just a matter of more money means we can do more surgeries at that cost. So when we think about the effectiveness of what we do and really the effectiveness that of the money that donors give, I mean, it's, there's really nothing like it. You and your wife, Erica, not only co-founders, board members, and, and significant funders, and, and, and passionate, I hear your passion for African Mission Healthcare, uh, you recently created the Gershon Lakayam Initiative. What is the prize, and, and why did you see it established? So we, we, we established the uh, uh, Lakayam Prize. Lakayam means uh, to life in, uh, in Hebrew. Uh, we established the prize um, in late 2015 when what what we saw was that um, Nick Kristoff of the New York Times wrote this uh, article with this really terrific accompanying uh, video blog about Dr. Tom Katina, in, and, and Tom serves in the Nuba Mountains. And uh, Tom is really one of the world's heroes. There's really uh, no other way to describe him. I mean, anyone can go just find the Nick Kristoff article, which is it's a newspaper article that is of enduring value and interest. And there's also this terrific interview with Tom Katina, um, done by Peter Atia on Peter's uh, podcast, which a lot of people are listening to, and we still get donations from people listening to Peter's podcast and and uh, reading Nick's article. But anyway, so so Nick wrote this article about Tom Katina, who um, is the only doctor he was then. Now he's because of us, we've been working with him to train people. But then in 2015, he was the only doctor serving about three quarters of a million people, and uh, in the Nuba Mountains, which was the stateless area between North and South. Sudan, and it was um, consistently then, not now, but then, um, getting bombed uh, by uh, Khartoum. And so it was very dangerous. So, uh, and Tom is a, uh, um, a doctor from uh, Amsterdam, New York, uh, who was trained at Brown and went to Africa as a uh, Christian doctor to devote his life to serving the poor and, and, and was in the Nuba Mountains. So Nick went to visit him there, and uh, Nick wrote this article about about Tom. And then we uh, reached out to Nick at the end of 2015 and we said, um, Erica and I, we said, uh, we'll match all donations made to support the work of Tom Katina 
um, up to 100,000. Um, and at, at that point, we were already partnering with Tom and his donations were coming through and uh, at African Mission Healthcare. So Nick said, okay. So Nick uh, wrote in, the, in his um, Giving Tuesday column, so that would have November of 2015, he wrote that here's a uh, rabbi, that would be Erica, me, rabbi's husband, and uh, um, are partnering with a Christian doctor, Dr. Tom Katina, to serve all patients in the Neva Mountains who are Muslim, Christian, and uh, people who were committed to Neva. And uh, so that, he wrote, it was something like that. And then um, the, the match got filled within, I think, one day. And then we doubled it. And then the second, then it got filled again. And I think we tripled it and then it got filled again. And uh, so what we learned from this was that um, when people are educated about uh, the work of Christian missionary physicians and how they can be their partner, and Nick did such a good job of educating people because his article was so um, illustrative, uh, that they give. So we said, all right, how can we sustain this? Because we can't, we can have Nick Christoph write an article about a different doctor every year, then we'll match it. But how, so how do we sustain it? So we said, well, why don't we uh, create a prize um, on the premise that, you know, if you give a, I don't know, if you give a chemist a million dollars, it's very nice, but if you give him a million dollars and call him a Nobel Prize winner, it transforms his life and amplifies his work in ways that far exceed the monetary prize, which is also important. So we said, let's create a prize to be given to a Christian missionary physician who is doing extraordinary work as determined by the data. So we said, let's have applications come from Christian doctors throughout Africa uh, with plans about what they will do with them. We said it'll be a half million dollar prize. So we'll give a half million dollars. So what, what they'll do with $500,000 um, over several years and then measure how much pain will be ameliorated and how many lives will be saved as a result of that $500,000, both in the present and in the future, the future because what systems will they create? What infrastructure will they build? What people will they train? And so it's all very data oriented and rigorously uh, focused. And so we established the prize and then um, the first winner was 2016, Dr. Jason Fader, who was um, then the only surgeon serving in a catchment area. He was the only surgeon, maybe with a couple others that he brought over from the US, uh, um, a catchment area in Burundi of over 2 million people. Um, and uh, and uh, Jason, who we were so fortunate to meet, was the first winner and uh, is just um, doing a truly unbelievable work in, in Burundi. And then we've had uh, four other winners uh, since every year from 2016 to the present. That is amazing. And I can't wait to see what they um, what comes of all their work. I think this is amazing. I, I do want to share with our listeners that African Mission Healthcare is a grant recipient and partner of UBS's Optimist Foundation, which is our client-funded foundation working to put philanthropy in action for our clients. And I'll add that, you know, gifts from our clients made to African Mission Healthcare through Optimist will benefit from match funding from UBS. And so we're, I'm, I'm glad I got to share that today. It's kind of like on the heels of what you just said, shifting to your faith. As Jews or, or as I said, many Jews are raised that it's their responsibility to support Jewish charities and causes. How do you, uh, you and Erica, seek a balance between that strong sense of need to be charitable within the Jewish community, but also to be supportive of non-Jewish causes in the community? In fact, I think you mentioned that uh, the Christian missionary uh, uh 
programs and support were most important to you all. So how do you how do you seek that balance? It's a great question, and um, so we view um, our Jewish obligations as giving um, very seriously, and and of course, and so and, and we do it with on, on the premise really that we learn from the Bible, um, really starting in Exodus 12, which is the kind of foundational um, story for the Pesach holiday, which is that allegiance don't trade off, allegiance is built. So if you look at Exodus 12, which is the night when the Jewish people really coalesced as a people. What do you see happen? You see individuals joining households. And then it says that if a household is too small to consume a lamb on really the first Passover night, what do you have to do? You have to invite another household. How many households are too small to consume a lamb? Well, it took 15 people to consume a lamb. So every household was too small to consume a lamb. So therefore, on this foundational night of Jewish peoplehood, you see individuals, of course, joining families. Families joined together. Households joined together to celebrate the meal, which was really the invention of community. And then you see the different communities going out together in a society, the different societies going out together and formed a nation. And the goal of that nation was to be a light unto the other nations. So what you don't see is allegiances trading off. You see allegiances building. And uh, I just think this is such a foundational biblical insight and truth that we can see in our everyday life. I mean, if your church or synagogue or any other institution, let's say, needed a president or a head of a, a, an organization within the institution and two candidates presented themselves and one person was uh, a guy who said, you know, I have plenty of time to do this because all I do all day is play video games in my parents' basement. So like, <laughs> I can do this. Person A or person B who says, you know, I have... Uh, kids, I have a spouse, I have a job, I have two other volunteer commitments, and I really want to do this. Knowing nothing more about the two people, which one would you vote for? Everyone would vote for number two, right? And why? Because we know that allegiances build and that commitments grow upon each other and that there really um, aren't trade-offs. And I think we see this um, all throughout the Bible. You know, in Deuteronomy, it says that you shall open your hand to your brother to your poor one, and to your needy one in the land. Now, the order of things in the Bible is usually very important, as it is here. So one's first obligations to his family, then to his city, and then to the entire land. So charity begins at home, but charity doesn't end there. So we are to become good particularists in order to become great universalists. And as the writer Cynthia Ozick said, we blow into the narrow end of the shofar to create a sound that is heard out of the wide end. So when we think about our giving, um, we give uh, considerably to um, Jewish uh, organizations and causes, primarily United Hatzalah of Israel, which um, I co-founded in uh, 2006. And what we do in Israel is we have 6,000 volunteers from every sector of Israeli society, Jews, Arabs, Muslims, Christians, um, everybody, uh, all of whom we train and equip as medics. Um, and we know where they are at all times so that whenever there is um, a trauma, heart attack, stroke, choking, bleeding, sudden birth, we can immediately identify the closest volunteer and dispatch him or her to the victim. So therefore, we can get to the victim within 90 seconds, which is in cities in three minutes, nation, in three minutes, the whole country, because it's in the city, we're going to have someone right nearby. It could be someone uh, sleeping or someone working or someone 
shopping or just going about whatever they're doing and having dinner, whatever they're going about in life, and we can get somebody to that person within 90 seconds in the city and three minutes nationwide, and we're able to save about 200 lives a day. Um, so, yeah, so we have um, very significant uh, commitments to the uh, Jewish community, um, and uh, but uh, it's but to be uh, but being uh, we also learn that allegiances build, and uh, and we also know that the Bible tells us more than anything else, the Bible tells us to love the stranger. The Bible says love the stranger so many times that there's even argument about how many times it says it, whether it says it 36 times or 46 times, because it says it in so many different ways. And uh, so the Bible tells us to love the stranger at least 36 times, but it never once tells us to love our children. So why would this be? Because you don't have to be told to do what you would do naturally. We don't have to be instructed to do what we would do without the instruction. So loving the stranger is obviously both extraordinarily important because it's mentioned so often and unnatural because it's mentioned at all. So when we think about how can we uh, be the kinds of Jews that we want to be, we have to look to love the stranger because it says dozens of times in the Bible. And uh, when we think how can we best discharge our Jewish obligation to love the stranger the best place to do it, the data would not only suggest, but the data would demand, would be to, to partner with Christian missionary doctors in Africa. Because we talk about the first winner of the Lahaim Prize, uh, Jason Fader in rural Burundi. I mean, that's the stranger. Not, Jay, not Jason, but because he's from the U.S., but the people that he treats, that's the stranger. One could go through one's entire life and not think about the poor of rural Burundi who are without medical care. But the Bible tells us to love the stranger. So, as Jews, we really can't go through life and not think about the people in rural Burundi and the people like them. We have to think about how we can best help them in material ways. And by far, the best way to do so is to partner with Jason Fader to bring surgery and maternal care and all kinds of other medical services to them. I, I think you address, I think, my next question. Your podcast focuses upon interpretations of scripture from the Torah and your new book, uh, The shares the meaning of life through the story and lessons of Passover. You've touched upon this a little bit, but what are the principles of Judaism or Jewish faith that you think can be applied by life to life by all planters? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great question. I, yeah, I, th I think love the stranger, absolutely. Of, of course, uh, that, uh, that comes from the, the, the Bible, which is the Jewish and Christian Bible. So it's incumbent upon Jews and Christians to love the stranger. When we, when we think about loving the stranger, so Love in Judaism is never just a nice sentiment. It's never just a thing of romance song. So love is what uh, my friend Rabbi David Wolpe calls an enacted emotion, which makes so much sense in that you can't say to your spouse, uh, I love you and do nothing to manifest that love. That marriage will not go very well. Like, so when we say that we love someone or love something, that demands sacrifice. And in fact, the first time in the Bible that someone says that the, that, that the, the, reference, the word love is used in reference to one person or another, it's with regards to um, Abraham and his son Isaac, um, as Abraham is about to thank God he doesn't have to, to sacrifice him on a mountain. So love always involves sacrifice. It always involves doing something for someone else. It always involves um, something that can be materially identified. So when we say we love the stranger, we have to think about how is that love going to be experienced by the beloved? And if the answer is, it's just going to be a nice sentiment, then we don't actually love the stranger. So if we say we're going to follow this 
religious imperatives said dozens of times in the Bible to love the stranger. We have to think about how are we going to actually do it in a way that will be materially experienced by the um, uh, beloved. Um, second, I would say uh, people of um, people who, who love the Bible, uh, which is worthy of all the love that anyone can give it. Uh, I would just say, let's turn to Deuteronomy 15:10, which has kind of a stunning passage, but it's directly on point. Deborah, to your question, it says, uh, "You shall certainly um, give him the poor, and let your heart not feel bad when you give him. For in return for this matter, Hashem your God will bless you in all of your deeds and in your every undertaking." So what this is saying is that if you give to the poor and you give willingly and happily that God will bless you in all your deeds and every undertaking. Every time the word blessing appears in the Bible, it's always material. It's, again, it's not an ethereal concept. It's very material. God blesses the ground, there's food. God blesses the womb, there are children. It's always material. So what the Bible is giving us here is a guarantee that if we give to the poor and we do it willingly, then God will bless us materially. So mm-hmm. let's put this to the test. I mean, put it to the test. Now, putting it to the test, that's not me saying. This is, what, this is from uh, Malachi, which is um, in the Bible, not the Torah, in the Bible. This is in the Bible. Test me in this, said the Lord, and see if I will not. So, wait, before that, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. Now, that's a pretty audacious claim when God is saying, test me. But that's what he's saying in Deuteronomy 2. What God is saying in both cases is, test me, if you give, you will become blessed materially yourself. In other words, and that's why in the Hebrew, the word um, to give, natan, is a palindrome. It it reads the same backwards and forwards. Because when you give, you also receive. There's no notion of a giver and a recipient. When you give, you also receive. So I say, let's, let's, I look at everything very rationally and very logically. So let's look at this rationally and logically. Now, again, I'll talk about my friend Rabbi David Wolpe, who has led um, a great congregation in Los Angeles for decades. And David said that um, nobody has ever come into my office and said to me, Rabbi, I've hit financial troubles because I've given too much to charity. So I pose David's point to um, many friends who were in the clergy in all kinds of different faiths. And I said to them, pastors, bishops, priests, I said to them, rabbis, have you, um, imams, have you, uh, have you ever had anybody uh, come to you and say that they've hit financial trouble because they've given too much to charity? And they just laugh. And I say, well, why are you laughing? I'm trying to ask a serious question. They just laugh because of course not. And so why of course not? Why have all of these clergy people who I've asked from all these different faiths who collectively must have served hundreds of thousands or maybe millions of people, I don't know. How come they've never met anybody who has gotten into financial trouble for giving too much to charities? Because the Bible's, the Bible's right. God made a promise and God keeps his promises. God said very clearly that if you give to the poor and give willingly, I'll bless you. And he does. So uh, it's right there in the Bible, right there in Deuteronomy 15.10, um, amplified in Malachi 3.10, and verified by the experience of all the clergy that I've asked. So that seems like a definition of a good deal. If you knew that an investment you made now, you would never regret. You would say, well, I'll put as much money into that as I can. That's what the Bible promises. Listening to you and, and, what, and, and your um, explanation interpretations, so love the stranger, 
uh, give to the poor. Uh, you've, you've explained and, and shared uh, your act of charity and philanthropy and how, and how Judaism has influenced. But how do you think, or has it, how has your philanthropy influenced your faith? Well, it's a good question. I mean, it's very much a part of our, of our faith, um, you know, our, our family's faith. I mean, in, in, in really every way. So, you know, we talk about loving the stranger. So, of course, um, in order to be a good Jew, the Bible tells us 36 plus times to love the stranger. You have to love the stranger and you have to do it in some kind of meaningful way where the beloved feels the love. So it's, 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 absolutely, it's an essential part of our faith. But also, um, on a much more uh, practical level, uh, you know, just give a couple of examples. So, you know, we... Through our work with African Mission Healthcare, we've been um, deeply fortunate to get to know some of the greatest people in the world. And these are the um, Christian doctors who are devoting their life to serving the poor in Africa. And every few years, um, they'll come home uh, to visit family and to, and to connect with their local churches um, for six to eight weeks or so. Uh, and then they'll go back for several more years. And when they come home, they'll, they, there's some chance they'll come through New York because they're in the New York area. And when they do, they'll come to us and, uh, but we won't meet them out at a restaurant. We want to know our kids. We want our kids to know these people. So we'll always have, we've been so blessed to have so many of these Christian doctors come into our home and spend an evening with us and really with our kids so that our children will know what true greatness is. And, uh, and it's just such a blessing for us that our children have been able to get to meet and get to know um, really so many of the greatest people in the world, these people who are, who are sacrificing, um, everything, the thing, everything we would consider luxuries by the broadest definition, as well as most things we'd consider necessities, uh, in order to serve the poor and to love the stranger in the most profound ways in the name of their faith, their Christian faith. And this is, we've gotten to show our kids, which has just been a real blessing, uh, for us. And then, um, you know, every, uh, every Friday night, every Shabbat, um, I'll, Go with my kids, particularly my youngest daughter, really loves doing this. We'll go to uh, Watsi.org. And so what uh, Watsi is this terrific uh, site um, that um, is basically crowdsourced uh, uh, surgery for um, around the world for people in need. And our African Mission Healthcare supplies uh, the cases that you'll see on Watsi um, throughout Africa. So every Shabbat, uh, my daughter will uh, pick some cases that she'd like to fund. And, you know, this is what we do every Friday. And so uh, I just think it's very important to um, to make philanthropy and really philanthropy properly understood as, as saving the lives and helping ameliorate people's pain. Um, you know, a part of one's uh, family life and habits and kind of uh, r- r- regular doings. And, uh, and that's what we do. I love that. It's like love your stranger uh, based upon um, really giving back and 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 sharing that. And, and then of course, the teachings of, with your children and starting them young, um, definitely making an impact on their lives as well as yours. Um, and kind of coming to the end of our podcast, I want to kind of circle back to the rabbi's husband, you, your your podcast, you and each okay. of your podcast by sharing the story of a parish priest and what he learned from mankind or about mankind from years of listening to confessions, and you ask your guests for two things that they've learned about mankind. So, Mark, I'm turning the tables here. As we end our podcast, sure. what are the things you have learned about mankind? Yeah, so let's see. I'll, I'll think of the, the two things that I've learned um, about mankind in, in our capacity, my wife and my capacity as, uh, as philanthropists. So 
One is that there's this ancient teaching in Judaism, not based in the Bible, but it's kind of lore. Nobody would say it's law. It's law. It's lore that there are 36 righteous people who at all times are holding up the world. And the lore is that no one knows who they are, except there's no doubt that uh, I know because these are the Christian doctors who we've been so blessed to uh, to get to partner with, know, and really be friends with. So there. And but what's the larger teaching? The larger teaching is that there are. No one really believes there are actually 36 people holding up the world. But what is the larger teaching? The larger teaching is that there are a small number of people who can make an extraordinary difference, as if they were holding up 3% of the world. And so that's the larger teaching, is that there are some people who have such moral greatness that it is as though they're able to hold up 3% of the world. And we've gotten to know many of these people. And one thing we've learned, so we've learned that's true. But another thing we've learned, they cannot operate without money. That that no matter how great they are and great they are, uh, if it weren't for philanthropists and I mean, UBS, I mean, so many companies talk about corporate social responsibility and they talk, but I have never seen a company that does it like UBS, you know, the rigor, the thoughtfulness, the courage and the commitment of UBS in partnering with its clients to alleviate suffering and save lives is just remarkable. And I think unprecedented and the 36 people who hold up the world at any given time, they could not, do what they do without the partnership of uh, philanthropists and the very rare institution like like UBS. And uh, and so it really is a partnership. So, uh, you know, even though I can't be as great as these doctors that we serve in Africa, I can partner with them and we can all partner with them. And really at, at any level, uh, we can all partner with them. I mean, and the greatness is, um, you know, if you'll indulge me for a moment, I mean, I just, uh, so I, just yesterday I got, um, so obviously I'm on the African Mission Healthcare email list, and I got the um, email that went out to everybody from John Fielder, who's my partner, the doctor in Africa. And so he runs the foundation, of course, out of uh, Kenya. We have about 40 people there. And, uh, but he also spends um, uh, a week a month as a clinical physician, as an infectious disease doctor. And, but in Africa, there's no real – you can do almost everything because there's so few doctors. So he, he was um, – in this weekly newsletter, he was talking, uh, writing about um, his experience during that week uh, at the hospital, really to give readers a sense as to what their support is doing and what it's actually like at these hospitals. And he we just told this story about um, how he was uh, getting ready to end the week and to take the uh, long uh, car ride, several hours uh, home uh, to another part of Kenya. And... Um, and then uh, he got word that one of his patients um, named uh, Abdul, you know, of course, I don't know the last name, but the patient named Abdul was um, uh, needed um, a blood, needed blood. And uh, there was no blood in the hospital. And uh, so uh, someone had to donate the blood. So who's going to donate the blood? John said he'll donate the blood. The doctor will donate the blood. And uh, so, so much for, uh, being able to leave to go back home to his family. He had to stay and donate the blood for Abdul. Um, now, then the story continues that after donating the blood, John got very sick. Hmm. And so I said to him, uh, so I called him. I said, uh, why? I said, I read this, but why did you get sick? I'm like, that's the part of the story that didn't make sense. You give, you give blood. That's pretty amazing. A doctor giving blood. I mean, I've never heard of that. Uh, but okay. Uh, and, uh, but you got sick. I'm like, and he had referenced in the, in the article that he, uh, he hadn't 
eating or drank much that day. I'm like, well, was that it? He said, he said, no, he said, I have actually a, a, a medical condition where I'm on a medicine where I'm not supposed to give blood. Oh. And, but here he is with a patient, the quintessential stranger that we talked about before, um, right. who needs blood. John has blood. By giving the blood, he knows full well that he's putting himself in jeopardy, but it's never a question, what's he gonna do? So, how many of us could be like John? Very, very few in the world, very few. He's one of the 36 people. But how many of us can partner with people like John? Every one of us. And all the Christian doctors that we work with in Africa have stories like this. I mean, this is the kind of people they are. And, uh, um, and we can all partner with them. So that's one of the great lessons is that there are serious people hold up the world. We've identified many of them and now all of us can partner, uh, with them. Uh, the other, uh, thing I would say that I've learned, um, in Eric and I've learned in kind of our life as philanthropists is that, um, the Bible is right. Now we've certainly talked about this before, but it's so important. I mean, plenty of people regret all kinds of things. People regret the friends they made, the spouses they married, the investments they made, the people they've hired, people they've worked for, the purchases they've made. People regret all kinds of things, but no one has ever regretted giving in support of the poor. You know, we talked about um, David Wolfley, who said no one's ever had financial problems doing it. No one's ever regretted it. Like, I've never met anybody who says, you know, I really regret having given that gift in support of the poor, whether it's to the poor that we support at AMH or whether it's the people who are that we support in Israel through United Hazallah. I've never met anybody who regrets it. Quite the opposite. It's, this, it's, you, it's usually or always what they're proudest of and what they're happiest about and what they want to educate their children is in is when they give in support of the poor. Now, this is not charity writ large. Plenty of people regret giving to institutions that end up advancing an agenda at odds with the giver's values. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about when it comes to supporting the poor, when it comes to ameliorating pain and saving lives, when it comes to providing surgery at $300 per, when it comes to giving a woman who would otherwise develop a fistula or die in childbirth the C-section that she needs for under $400, no one ever regrets it. So if one knew, in, and no one, so if one knew in advance See, you told someone in advance, I have an investment for you, and I swear to you, you will never regret it, and you trusted the person saying that, would you make it or not? Of course you would make it. And uh, so if no one ever regrets supporting the poor, uh, then, and I've never seen anyone regret it, and I've seen people being so happy about it and proud of it, then one would think we should all do more of it. Well, Mark, I think we should end on that note. Um, thank you for the time today and truly enjoyed our conversation. I know our listeners will appreciate hearing from you and your perspective and learning about African Mission Healthcare. So I thank you. Well, Deborah, thank you. And thank you for the really sacred partnership that uh, UBS has provided to African Mission Healthcare. I mean, the care, the rigor, the commitment, the generosity that UBS has shown is unprecedented and Thousands of people are living and living healthily because of, of that commitment from UBS. So thank you for all you do. Thank you.
As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that clients understand the ways in which we conduct business, that they carefully read the agreements and disclosures that we provide to them about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review the PDF document at UBS.com forward slash relationship summary. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA SIPC.